Okay, hello friends, welcome, welcome. Eddie Chavez Calderon here, campaign organizer for Uri Litsetic. So happy to be a part of this event today. I'm gonna go ahead and be admitting people as I'm introducing our amazing speaker today. I hope everybody's having a great day. I have the honor of introducing Rabbi Avi Spodek, uh, who is a lifelong learner, a, a veteran day school educator. He is a Meshamach of uh, Rav Salman uh, Nechmia Goldberg and uh, it's, uh, Rav Daniel Landis. Uh, he lives in Baltimore, uh, Maryland with his wife and three children. I'm so happy uh, to have uh, Rabbi Avi join us today. And um, I hope everybody enjoys such a great, great uh, shiru that Rabbi is gonna be sharing with us today. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Great, and I just uh, apologize up front in terms of being on two screens and uh, my source sheet will be uh, screen shared for you. So, all right. So, um, I've when asked to speak with uh, uh, for um kind of was thinking about different things that are showing up in the news and in politics. And when taking a look at the law um, that I believe is passed uh, in Texas, or that they're trying to pass in Texas, which is if a parent um, enables their uh, transgender child to transition through a medical procedure that um, it would actually, uh, they could, there could be a charge against the parents in terms of, uh, I guess, like within the context of child abuse or they were definitely make, uh, making it illegal. Um, and so it's an issue that has been uh, on my radar, let's say for the last few years um, in terms of transgender. It's something that uh, I have been in, involved in um, in a uh, sort of surprising and intense way. Um, and I, I kind of, and so today's talk is about um, using the multiple lenses that we can often use when reading through uh, traditional Jewish texts in order to get a little bit more of a reading in terms of what Jewish tradition might have to say with regards to uh, gender identity and transgender and so on and so forth. Um, I believe I'm supposed to introduce myself, cisgender heterosexual male. Um, and so gender and sex are two uh, big components of transgender that is, are often misunderstood by people. And we'll come back to that momentarily, but I will go into screen share and show the, uh, share the document with you um, in terms of my, sorry, it's a Google Doc, and it, hopefully you guys could see this at this point, um, although you did just disappear from my screen, so I have to figure that out for myself. Um, all right, so we are looking at There we go. All right. So we see the document. Everyone's on the document. Excellent. Wonderful. Thank you for that. All right. So first of all, the introduction and the rationale in terms of uh, what, what exactly is it that allows me or drives me or guides me in this search of text and what maybe might be helpful for you. So there's Mishnah in, in Pirkei Avot. Uh, this is a section of the Mishnah. Uh, it's a sort of captures a lot of the Jewish values that, uh, that were left the legacies that were left behind during the Second Temple period, um, and a lot of famous uh, Jewish rabbis, or even not rabbis, uh, scholars are quoted. And one of those scholars is Ben Bagbag. And Ben Bagbag says, <laughs> So 
Uh, his words are turned over and over again. He's, he's referring to the study of texts. Keep turning it over and over again for all is therein. It contains the answers to everything. Right? You just have to know how to look at it right. Look into it, become gray and old therein, never leave it behind. Do not move away from it because you have no better portion than it. Um, and I would say it sort of encapsulates not necessarily even a conscious attempt um, for myself, but just the way I work, that when new things come up, um, I look into the text to see, are there any clues in the text? Um, I try as much as possible to ensure that the text is, is, uh, is actually could be speaking about this as opposed to trying to read my own agenda into the text. And so when it came to transgender, uh, I, I looked for some inspiration from sources from some texts and uh, I've come across a few things and I kind of want to share them. And ultimately we'll come back at the end to the question in terms of the parent role in um, the parent-child relationship when a child says, um, identifies as transgender or non-binary or um, anything that might seem a little bit out of the ordinary for parents um, in terms of what, they've, what they're used to or expected to experience. So we begin with Zahar Tam. So this is a classic text. Uh, this is taken from Sefer Bereshit, Book of Genesis, in Parak Aleph, Chapter 1. Uh, it's the creation of the world and the culmination on the sixth day where Elohim says, let us make humankind in our image after our likeness, right? rule over the fish of the sea and the birds. And then the next pasuk, it says, God created human in the divine image, B'Tselem Elohim Barautam, in the image of God, God created them, Zachar Barautam, and God created them male and female. So it's a, a somewhat of a difficult text to understand, and perhaps that's why for most of us, um, or at least I'll speak for myself as a graduate of a day school system, uh, generally go with the second creation story of God forming human out of earth, and then God removing a rib from man to create woman, but there is also this account of the creation of humanity and the phrase um, So right here, we're going to jump into, for me, at least the question of like uh, one, gender versus sex, right? How do we use those terminologies? And so, um, and, and two, um, what is sort of the natural order of things? Like in identity, um, less of a, let me rephrase this, could it be something genetic, even if it's not necessarily biological per se, but more emotional? Um, and so looking into this text, so, um, and the secondary thing is defining gender and, and, and sex. So we'll start with sex. Sex is the, um, we're the genitalia, uh, when you're born, the genitalia that the doctor sees, the sex that the doctor assigns to you is either uh, it's male or female as well, um, but it, it's definitely looked at from a scientific reproductive perspective in terms of boy-girl. Um, when we talk about gender, though, and correct me, by the way, uh, when we talk about gender, we're actually looking at more, or the way that I understand it, we're looking at societal expectations, right? expectations that society assigns to a, a man and a woman, let's say, um, but it's not necessarily... The, the genetic biological makeup of that person. It's really more outside society saying, we expect, you know, for example, we expect girls to wear pink and boys to wear blue. That's a gender component. Um, and so 
we're not necessarily talking about the biology of, of the human being when we talk about somebody who identifies as transgender, we're talking about how they feel and how they might feel in relationship to what society expects of them versus like internally what they see themselves as or what they strive for. And so reading Zahar and Nikkei over here, it's not really clear if this is biologically created or right or if we're if this is gender or sex that we're talking about in terms of creating them male and female but it's intriguing that god as we would probably be willing to say is neither male nor female man nor woman he nor she even though often god is referred to with the capital h he but god if if humans were created in the image of god and humans were created male and female then god also is right, male and female um and so that's one text. We have later in the fifth chapter of Genesis in Parakei, we have a todot of Adam, the, the history of humankind, so to speak. And the Torah kind of starts and gives us uh, the, the uh, genealogy over here and says, when God created humankind, uh, it was made in the likeness of God, male and female were they created. And when they were created, God blessed them and called them human. Okay, so again, a reference later on in terms of in terms of the creation of human, Adam, um, and this, this duality, right? This uh, non-binary, I guess, right? Um, so, all right. So those are the two uh, biblical texts. And if we jump into a Midrash in Breshit Rabban, and Midrash is, again, historically, is around the time of the Mishnah. We're talking around the time of the Second Temple. So anywhere between, let's say, 200 before the Common Era to 200 after CE, whatever. Um, God says, let us, uh, according to this, quoting the Pasuk, let us be humankind in our image. And after our likeness, Reb Yirmiyah ben Elazar said, at the moment that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, HKBH, um, that's what it stands for, the Holy One, blessed be he, created the first human, the human was androgynous. Just as later as it is written, male and female was created. And if you take a look on the Hebrew side, you could see that the, the Midrash is commenting on the verse from chapter one from Perak Aleph and backing it up with a verse from chapter five, the two verses that we saw above. Now, Rabiria ben Elazar offers a Midrashic interpretation, which is definitely not mainstream, um, but saying that the human was created as androgynous with both male and female genitalia. Um, and um, and, and then later on, there was some sort of separation process. Um, I understand this perhaps as like uh, asexual reproduction, that the human had the ability to reproduce even without the, the, um, the, class, the classic sexual reproduction. Um, and that's maybe what male and female, uh, according to Rabbi Yurmiya ben Elazar, it's actually more of the biological, but there is already a voice now in our tradition that is engaged in this question of humans being created in the image of God, right? And the godliness of it all, or what we might refer to then of the naturalness of it all. Is it natural? When somebody says I identify as, as transgender, um, and it's something that I felt all my life, and like, it's not my fault, I was born that way, um, oftentimes the reaction is, it's just, you know, influences of society. However, I think that when, when I look at these texts, and I read them, that if humans were created in the image of God, and that means that they were created male and female, that there's something very non-binary about male and female, not one or the other, but that God is neither, um, and so therefore human beings in their original creation are neither or both as the case may be. And so that 
probably inside every single human being, there are, there are male and female tendencies. Um, and of course, when we talk about gender, we know that to be factual, that, that just because, um, let's say, just because I'm a man doesn't mean that I, again, going back to that trope um, from before, it doesn't mean I don't like to wear pink shirts, right? Like that's sort of innate as part of, uh, part of it. So that's step number one in terms of the text. Is it natural? And when you, when my experience in speaking with, with, trans, with people who identify as, as transgender is that it's important to understand that from their perspective, this is not a choice. Um, and to recognize the difficulty that you may have with processing that, but also to re realize that uh, if we turn and turn the Torah, there's a very clear hint right at the beginning in the creation of humankind that male and female are not necessarily separate and that being created in the image of God is quote unquote, uh, at fault for that, because we are simply in the image of God. Um, <clears throat> all right, the second text that I've studied that I'd like to share with you, I've Shnei Goyim. Um, this is the story of Yaakov and Esav. So we have brothers previously in the stories in the Torah. Yaakov and Esav are going to become um, the, the sort of ultimate brothers, um, or we might say the, the binaries within um, the Jewish brothering. Um, and we're going to take a look a little bit more in terms of gender and expectations of society. And I think you'll see sort of how I read these texts as we go through them. And I've, I've taken some liberty with the text in terms of just trying to keep what I think is relevant. Um, so there are a couple of ellipses, right? But over here we have uh, Rivka is pregnant and she, uh, she had tried to become pregnant and she uh, Yitzhak prayed for her to become pregnant. And when she got pregnant, she had some issues and she didn't really have anyone to ask. So she went to seek God. And God said to her, two goyim are in your womb, literally like two nations, two peoples are in your, room, in your womb. So this is like the conversation about two in one womb. And um, the first time that that has really been mentioned, there have been twins or brothers born before, but this is the first twinning story. And then it tells us that as the boys grew, right, they were born, um, Esav was a knowledgeable hunter and a man of the fields, and Yaakov was a, was a simple tent dweller or what's simple and a tent dweller. Now, this to me takes me right back to like hunter-gatherer type of um, societies and, and takes my mind into the question of gender um, and, and how much that plays over here. Um, I was definitely raised to understand Yaakov and Esau as sort of uh, complementary or even opposites of each other. And so I, I kind of read that into the text. And as I read that into the text, I think about society's expectations, right? Esau was this knowledgeable hunter. He was an excellent hunter. He, he was out in the fields, whereas Yaakov was more simple and homely. And Yitzchak, the father, loved Esav, right? So male-to-male -male love. And Rivka loved Yaakov, right? Mother-to-child. To um, and Yaakov stewed lentils, and Esav came in from the field, and he was tired. That's the story about where uh, Yaakov is going to receive the, the document for being firstborn. Um, but as I read through these, and, and this is, again, my reading, and I, I hope it makes sense, even if, it, even if you don't agree, um, is that in some ways, like, Esav is set, set up as manly man, and Yaakov is set up as more effeminate, if you will, in terms of what society perhaps expected, you know, uh, let's say 30, 40 years ago, right? You have the, the one who goes out and, and hunts and brings the food in and is comes in from the field and is tired. And then you have the one that stays at home and cooks the meals. And of course, dad loves 
the, the masculine and mom loves the sort of feminine. And that's how I read this. Okay, so that's important for the setup that the, the twins being born is kind of the beginning of a binary gender, a binary gender in the Torah, even though it's not necessarily going to align perfectly. So famously, later in chapter 27 of Genesis, and I'm sorry that I didn't translate this, um, hopefully it's a story that most of you know, that um, Yitzchak wants, is getting old and he wants to bless his, his son, Esau. And so he tells Esav, go out, get some food from the field, prepare a meal for me, and then I would like to give you a blessing. And Rivka overhears this. Um, I was always taught that Rivka was in the kitchen and she overheard what was going on in the living room, um, but there's nowhere in the text that says that. But she um, takes Yaakov aside and, and basically tells Yaakov, you got to get this blessing. And Yaakov's like, wait, like we're not alike at all. Esav was described as very, I, I think that I missed that in the text. When Esav came out, he was all covered in hair. Yaakov was not described as that, so we could assume he wasn't all covered in hair. And so Yaakov was very afraid that his father, who was blind, by the way, or at least very hard of sight, um, would immediately be able to sense the difference between the two brothers. And so Rivka goes and takes Esav's clothing and dresses Yaakov so that Yaakov will um, appear to the touch, I guess, to be his brother Esav and therefore could fool his father. And one of the things that she takes is Orot Gdiyeizim, the skins of the, of the goats, of the younger goats. Hilbisha al Yadav on his hands, Balchelkat Savaravan on his neck. Okay, so he's wearing, I guess, leather, furry leather gloves. Right. And uh, also like a, probably like a mink or whatever fur on his neck. And this is going to fool his father into thinking. Um, and so he approaches with the food and Yitzchak and he says, uh, Yitzchak says, who's there? He says, it's me, Esav. And Yitzchak says to Yaakov, thinking he's not knowing he's Yaakov, Geshana, approach me, please. Let me feel around to see if you are Esav, my son. And Yaakov approaches him, right? So he checks him out and he uh, like draws him in and he says, The voice is the voice of Yaakov, but the hands are the hands of Esav. Velohikiro, he didn't recognize who it really was, because he had hairy hands because of these gloves, just like his brother Esav, this is Yaakov, and so Yitzchak, thinking this is Esav, or saying this is Esav, and deciding that, gives him a blessing, and he says, before he begins the blessing, you are my son Esav, and Yaakov says, I am. So the traditional way of reading this is, we know this is somewhat problematic, um, I teach I teach to uh, to young adults, we'll call them emerging adults. And, and this seems like a little bit like uh, not so straight, right? Like he's tricking his dad, he's stealing a blessing, what's up with Yaakov? And it's something that should trouble the reader, especially when you're reading according to Peshat. Um, there's this plan in action to trick Yitzchak, who is one of the Avot, in order for Yaakov to get the blessing. It also raises the question of like, how was Yitzchak so easily fooled? Like, couldn't he have figured it out? The voice is the voice of Yaakov, was it? He's, he was already suspicious. And so I'd like to um, present a little bit in terms of my reading, pulling back from the previous sources. We've already described Esav as this sort of, again, I'm gonna use the term in apologies, as this sort of typical manly man, right? The brawny man, Marlboro man, if you will. Um, 
And whereas Yaakov is much more meek or much more simple or, right? Like if you're thinking about like who you're choosing for your team in a sports game, like Asaph's probably going first and like Yaakov's probably, you know, one of the later ones. Um, and so, and, and it seems like there's something in their voices that is coming out that identifies them. So Yaakov puts on this dress and Hakoko Yaakov de Esav, Esav's confused because to the touch, this feels like Esav, which by the way is insight. Yaakov was probably, well, we'll get to this in a moment in terms of like his physical build, but he says this out loud and he says, I, I don't like, I can't recognize you, but he, and the words that Yitzhak says, so in tradition, we would read this as a question. Are you my son, Esav? And Yaakov would say yes. And once again, Yaakov has lied. Um, I would like to read this differently. I would like to read this as, you are my son, Esav. Almost in a um, factual statement, maybe even if we're talking Hebrew diktuk, of Yitzhak making the decision that the person standing in front of him right now is Esav, regardless of the voice and the hands, it's Esav. And therefore it was able to give the blessing to Yaakov. And again, the binary, the, the difference between, right, the dichotomy really between Yaakov and Esav sets us up to think that like, Koko Yaakov Yadaim de Esav. Um, and nonetheless, when presented with these, with this sort of like, wait, from Yitzchak's perspective, this cognitive dissonance, wait a second, this person sounds just like Yaakov, but this person feels just like Esav, Yitzchak's very confused, but ultimately Yitzchak ma makes the decision and says, you know what, my child is Esav. Um, I'm gonna pause here to make sort of the pitch on this one, which is um, for parents, again, when, when, the child, when the child identifies as, as transgender, um, it's still a relatively new thing and it's still something that is maybe perhaps difficult to comprehend. Um, but I, I would argue based on this text that we do have a Jewish tradition in terms of how parents should respond to their children identifying as maybe something other than what their parents identify them as, right? So for Yitzchak loved Esav and apparently he loved them because of his hands or something like that, right? Because he had the, the sarot on his hands. Um, but, but then when Yaakov becomes Esav, Right, the reason Yaakov, who's this other one, when he becomes Esav, Yitzchak's also able to sort of accept that identity shift. Yaakov, normally smooth hands, now hairy hands, and, and Yitzchak says, okay, I'm gonna give him the blessing. And again, I'm reading that simply as a parent accepting their child's identity, how that child identifies, which also helps me answer the question of, was Yaakov lying? No, Yaakov was not tricking his father. And as a matter of fact, it was his mother, Rivka, who recognized that there was something different about this child, this Ishtam Yoshev Ohalim, right? Who liked to make stew, who might've been seen as effeminate. There was something really powerful and strong that, that mom saw in the child and, and that mom helped dad discover in the child as well. Um, and so that's a little bit of, uh, that's, that's the insight there. I just wanted to jump ahead to Bereshit Chavtet. And this is after Esau finds out that his blessing has been stolen and he uh, has to run away because Esau wants to kill him. And just to prove that Yaakov was no, you know, he was, he was not necessarily 
um, the before picture from, you know, the back of those Charlie Atlas, I don't think they even existed, whatever, right? He's not this like meek person. When he arrives, this is the story of when Yaakov runs away, he arrives at the well, right? And there's all of the shepherds are standing around the well and Yaakov says to them, like, don't you have a job to do? And they say, we like give your sheep to drink and go. And they said, all of these shepherds together say, we can't. We have to wait for all of the shepherds to show up in order to be able to remove this rock. We need all of that manpower in order to do it. And then we could give the, the sheep to drink. And in the end, when Yaakov sees Rachel approaching, Yaakov manages to do this all on his own. Yaakov has those manly man traits, right? He's strong. He could do the work of five shepherds in terms of moving a stone. And yet there's the Torah presents him in one way. In Yaakov, sees, uh, sorry, Yitzchak, his father, sees him in one way. Yet Rivka's mother recognizes that there's something different. And when Yaakov, again, does identify as something other than Yaakov, Yitzchak is willing to accept that and Yitzchak is willing to pass on the blessing. And, and hopefully that's something that uh, if, if um, in relationship to parenting and or dealing with students um, is the willingness to accept that they know their identity perhaps a little bit more and to connect it back to the first source is to be humble enough to recognize that we don't really understand the first creation of humanity and we are discovering a lot about humanity and and the biology and the nature of humans and this that might be something that's happening right now in our society for the better when it comes to transgender my final text uh, that i wanted to share with you is a is a rabbinic text it's a it's a it's a brighta that is brought in um in bavli in the talmud bavli and brachot so a Brita, again, would put it in that same time range in terms of uh, Second Temple. Um, and it's, it, it's an amazing, amazing story. It's one of my favorite texts from the Talmud. Um, I've used it in many different ways. And again, it was one of the things where I was reading it one day and it just kind of like struck me like, whoa, this is a really like very to the point text when we talk about uh, gender identity or identifying as something different and other than what your physical may present to, um, to others. So this is the story of Tanura Banan, this one student had come to Rabbi Joshua and he said, uh, do I have to do evening prayers? Are they optional or mandatory? And Rabbi Yeshua said they're optional, which obviously would have made him a very popular rabbi. Um, that same student came to, then came to Rabbi Gamliel. Rabbi Gamliel was the, was the head, the Nasi um, of the Jewish people at the time, uh, right after the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. And they asked him, the same student, uh, mandatory or optional, and Rabbi Gamliel said that they're mandatory. And then, like every good student would do, or any teenager probably would do as well, say, but, but Rabbi Yoshua just said that it was optional. And Rabbi Gamliel, who apparently had a little bit of a short fuse, says to the student, why don't you wait until the shield bearers enter the house of study? Which is a reference, generally, we translate that as a reference to the fact that when the rabbis come in to debate these things, we'll raise the question right, and we'll be able to pass some sort of law with regards to it. So they come in, uh, when the shield bearers entered, the questioner stood and asked, are evening prayers optional or mandatory? Rabbi Gamliel shouts out, they are mandatory. And then there's silence. Rabbi Gamliel says, is there anybody at all who disagrees with me? Sort of, I like to read this challenging, he's challenging. And I imagine he's staring right at Rabbi Yoshua. Rabbi Yoshua looks back at him and goes, no. And Rabbi Gamliel then goes to him, wait, 
but didn't I hear that you said that they're optional? And Rabbi Yoshua responds by saying, um, sorry, then Rabbi Gamliel says, Joshua, Yoshua, stand on your feet and they will testify against you, right? So he makes Rabbi Yoshua stand, which is a tremendous sign of disrespect. Um, if everybody's sitting, you make them stand. Uh, something I think they used in my classroom when I was in middle school, not that I would have necessarily experienced it, but right, that's what's happening. And then Rabbi Gamliel says to Rabbi Yoshua, stand and they will testify against you. And Rabbi Yoshua stands and he says, look, if I were alive and the student was dead, then I could contradict dead person. But since he's alive and I'm alive, I can't really contradict him, right? Basically, he's not going to lie about it, but he's not, he's going to say the reason why he's not going to say it is because the other person is lying. It's, it's a really interesting, it's a very good line. Um, but Rabban Gamliel forced him to continue standing, right? He's still standing accused, literally. Rabban Gamliel continues to sit and expound on the Torah. Rabbi Yeshua stands on his feet. And everybody's noticing this tremendous disrespect because Rabbi Yeshua, by the way, background, if Rabban Gamliel is number one, Rabbi Yeshua is number two. Right? And he's the one that says Ma'ariv is optional. So he's also probably, possibly a little bit more popular than Rabban Gamliel. And the people are noticing this, murmurs are going out until finally the people shout to Chutzpit, the Maturgaman, this person who would translate or repeat what, would, what was happening on the floor so that other people could hear it. And um, they told him to stop and he stopped. And there was a rebellion essentially. <clears throat> and um, they, they say, how long will Rabbi Gamliel go on harassing Rabbi Yoshua? Apparently the, these two had a history um, with regards to the decision of when it was going to be Yom Kippur um, with regards to uh, Rabbi Tzadok and the Bechorot. And so this is strike three for Rabbi Gamliel. Come, let us depose him. Um, we're going to remove him from his position as the Nasi. He is not behaving in an appropriate manner. Um, so just to, we'll pause there and we'll just, again, establish. In this text, we have the essentially the leader of the Jewish people who um, has his way of doing things, um, is a little bit gruff, we might say, not necessarily a tremendous politician. Um, and this is the third time that he is attacking kind of like the opposite, also like a dichotomy over here, the more populist, the more um, uh, middle class, you might say, probably lower class if you read the rest of the story, uh, Rabbi Yoshua. Um, and he's presented by the Talmud very openly, and he's, he's obviously an essential player in the rabbinic tradition, but he's presented as like, like a jerk a little bit, right? Like he's, why is he doing this? And and that's just like, this is, again, it's not to say that, right? But this is how the Gemara encapsulates the way that he's been behaving. And maybe he got a little bit out of control, went his head a little bit, but that's where we see Rabban Gamliel over here. So there's a whole dot, dot, dot in here. They ended up choosing Rabbi Elezer ben Azariah. He's the one who says, which we are going to say in you know, a week and a half or so when we sit down for a Pesach Seder, right? But this is also quoted in the story over here because he apparently was very young. And when he went home to ask his wife if he should take the job and his wife said, no, 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 no. Um, a miracle happened overnight and his hair turned gray. And he said, well, I guess I could then. And he went and he decided to become the follow-up to Rabbi, uh, to Rabbi Gamliel. And it's taught that when, when Rabbi Gamliel was, was removed from his position as the Nasi and from basically being in charge of the shield bearers of the study of the Jewish traditions, Atana taught that on that day, they removed the entrance guard and gave permission to the students to enter. So they used to have a 
a uh, security checkpoint, you might say, outside of the Beit Midrash, if you want to call that, call it that. And they would, uh, only certain students could get in. And the rule was, and here's the quote, for Rabban Gamliel used to announce, he had a rule, any student whose inside is not like his outside may not enter the house of study. And in the, on the rabbinic side of it, it's in Hebrew, kol talmid she'en tocho kivaro, his insides are not like his outsides, lo yikanes midrash. And it sort of just jumped out at me, right? That your insides don't match your outsides. And on the day that Rabban Gamliel, who was acting in a jerky fashion, right? The day that he, uh, we're told that he also had this rule, which I think the Talmud wants to put into that, acting in a, in a jerky fashion of saying, unless your insides match your outsides, you can't come into the house of study. So then the day that he was removed, anybody could get in. And why does that matter? Well, we're told on that day, they added a number of benches to the Beit Midrash. Some say even up to 700 benches were required to be brought in to allow for those students who were excluded from Rabbi Gamliel's, we'll call it conservative elitist perspective. And then Atana also teaches that on that day, tractate Ediot was taught and wherever, um, sorry, and there was no legal decision which had been undecided in the house of study that they did not resolve. In other words, what the Gemara is saying is on the day where we removed the limitations of insides matching outsides, on that day, they were studying Ediot and they figured out everything by letting in everyone, by not having any restrictions, by adding 700 benches to the Beit Midrash, they were able to get done what we might say Congress hasn't been able to get done for the last four years type of thing. So it's seen as very positive that the restrictions of Rabban Gamliel have been removed um, in addition to the personality of Rabban Gamliel. And going back to the, to the line again, any student whose inside is not like his outside may not enter the house of study. And to me, this is, um, probably not intentional in the Talmud. I hope, and, and sorry, sorry, sorry. I hope and wish that it was, but probably not. Um, most of the commentaries will, will talk about this in a very different way. Like, you know, somebody who wears shorts and a t-shirt, um, I don't care how, how amazingly knowledgeable they are in Torah study, they're not allowed to enter into the Beit Midrash, right? Or somebody who's dressed really like he should be in the Beit Midrash, but when I speak to him, he's not really so articulate, they don't get into the Beit Midrash. But to me, what jumped out is insides versus outsides. And when we talk about transgender and gender identity, that is terminology that is, uh, that is used often. That my, my, what's inside of me doesn't match what's outside of me. When I look into the mirror, it, it doesn't match what I see in my mind's eye. And this story again, jumping out at me and then trying to take a lesson away from it. And part of that, part of what I see over here is that the refusal to allow somebody whose insides don't match their outside to exist in our society is like a jerk thing to do, right? It's, it's the kind of thing that somebody, right? If you're, not, if you're not really being nice to people, it's the kind of thing that you would do. And that really, we shouldn't jump into our society with these restrictions. We should, we should recognize that everybody has their role to play in society and that our society actually exists much better by allowing people, even whose insides are not like their outsides, to enter into the house of study and to enter into the conversation. And when I bring these all together, these sources together, what, what I walk away with 
is the Jewish tradition with regards to transgender identity and how, as somebody who identifies as cisgender, how I should behave when engaging a conversation with somebody who is, um, is trying to discover their true identity. That to recognize that, you know what, this might've been the way that God actually created human beings. That this is something innate and inherent inside of, of another human being that might not, you might not be able to explain it rationally. I may not be able to quantify it for you. Uh, there's no at-home testing kit that you could take, right? Or, or like PCR, they can't just shove something up your nose and touch your brain and then they know whether you're positive or negative, right? This is something that is very um, unclear, but male and female as one is the way that humanity was created. So maybe I should hold off a little bit before making that decision. Recognizing that that binaries and dichotomies and gender identities have existed throughout our tradition, and our tradition has often bucked that system, most notably Yaakov, who is seen as and presented as a more effeminate, we might say, human, um, but who also has this really strong masculinity um, in inside of him uh, that that parents that his parents do recognize, and ultimately that his parents do accept. And finally, that as a community to, um, to have standards that are our own standards, right? How do you know if somebody's insides match their outsides? It's a very subjective standard to say, I will decide who gets in and who gets out to recognize that our rabbinic tradition is a little bit more humble than that and a little bit more kind than that. And our rabbinic tradition says, we have plenty of benches for everyone to come in and sit. And the more, the better. I wouldn't necessarily say merrier if you've studied Eduyot, uh, but the more, the better, and the better it is for the Jewish people. Um, and so, yeah, those are my three texts. I thank you guys for your time. I don't know if I have time for questions or what's next. Questions? Yeah, we have time for questions. Yeah, I'd love Go feedback ahead. questions. This is the, these are, I just want to say that these are a, couple, a few things that I, some of them I've written, some of them I have in my head. This is my first time really presenting in mountain time as well. Um, so yeah, if there's any feedback. Yes. I, I want to thank you, first of all. I really appreciate this. I'm wondering if you are willing to some source sheet or if that's a possibility, I understand either way. No, no, it's totally fine. Um, this was uh, a classic case of I have enough time. I have enough time. I don't have enough time. So I have the I have the page. I'll, I'll download it. As a PDF. Eh, it's OK. We all have that. Right. So thank you for understanding. But yeah, that would be amazing. Um, totally. And I want you to know that the Rabban Gamliel story is also pretty much my favorite story. And I've also used it in a variety of ways. And I say Toho Biboro Kiboro. I think it comes up for me at least once a week or every other week, but never in that particular connotation. And I really, really love that. That just resonates very powerfully for me. Um, and I want to suggest something else that I, I've been doing 929 and Rabbi Dalia Marks has an amazing perush on the chapter 39 that Yosef is, is like a woman and a little bit that Dina is like a man, and you could add that to your text. It's, a, it's an amazing connection of Midrashim that I happened to have heard yesterday. So I'm really, really appreciating also the fact that you, that you address this. That's what I'm really appreciating. So thank you. Well, thank you for that feedback. And uh, uh, for sure, uh, addressing is, 
you know, I, lo I love learning Torah and discovering things. And again, going back to the beginning of turn it and turn it, um, I think it's there. And like you said, we've read this story how many times until it actually jumps out at you and you're like, oh, that's what it means. And that's why we learn Torah on a continuous basis. That's why we don't stop because we're going to discover more and more. Any other questions or feedback? Uh, any other texts? For sure, I love that you offer texts. I just wonder, like, if if we're going to look at the twins, Yaakov and Esav, then the next question is, like, is there something to be learned from Rachel and Leah and the sort of ambiguous Enaim Rachot? And Rachel is this, like, archetypal beautiful woman, but Leah is the one who has fertility. I don't know. If, I don't know if we have to turn that over and find something there, but it seems like the next place to go. So, yeah, it's, I think that's great. And I think it's sort of a, a double dip in the sense of like, we're not just talking about gender identities, but we're also talking about actually being able to read a little bit um, more uh, of a feminist perspective into, into Rachel and Leah and, and help um, a lot of our female identifying students have some other role models to look at. It's awesome. Anyone off camera I want to ask a question? Awesome. Uh, so I, I really thank you for your time. Um, definitely make the source, source sheet available. Um, I would offer myself as a resource for this type of, uh, if anyone is interested, uh, I, I'm sure there's better resources out there, but definitely if, if I'm the name that you're thinking of, feel free to reach out. Uh, thank you so much for a tour of for this opportunity. I, again, I've never taught mountain time uh, where, and I've only, only a few years ago uh, discovered that there are uh, the Jews from Azerbaijan are called mountain Jews. Um, and so um, and there's like mountain time, mountain Jew. It was a little confusing when I saw it in the email. Uh, just I'm used to it, right? It's either PST or EST for me. So thank you so much. Uh, I want to wish everyone Shabbat Shalom, and happy learning. Thank you so much. Everybody take care.